1: Today we're talking about happiness in action. We're talking about making a difference locally and globally through education and the economy. My first guest today is author and filmmaker Helena Norberg-Hodge, who is the founder and director of Local Futures, an NGO dedicated to the renewal of community, ecological health, and local economies worldwide. Helena has been promoting an economics of personal, social, and ecological well-being for more than 30 years. She is the producer and co-director of the award-winning documentary, The Economics of Happiness, and the author of Ancient Futures, Learning from Ladakh, an inspirational book about the impact of development on traditional cultures. And I'm so excited to have her here with me today because we met many, many years ago. We're going to talk about that. Welcome, Helena. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Oh, it's a delight. Talk about um, your work in Ladakh over the years. And some of our listeners might not even know where Ladakh is or have ever heard of it. Yes, it's amazing that people haven't heard of it
2: because it is a part of Tibet. And it is the Dalai Lama is the spiritual head and it's high up on the plateau. But it's a part of Tibet that belongs politically to India. And it was sealed off from the outside world until very late. And when it was thrown open uh, in the mid-70s, I came out as one of the first foreigners, and I learned to speak the language fluently, and I fell in love with these people and the place. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I just uh, realized more and more how rare it is to have had the experience that I did because I I – Speaking the language fluently, I came to know people who were happier and more at ease and peace than any people I had ever encountered. And it was a remarkable situation, and it was because they had not been colonized. They had not been affected by a global economic system, which has been very destructive for hundreds of years because it's been imposing a top down monoculture it's been supporting a small elite at the expense of many people and it's been yeah it's been a bit of a disaster but luckily all around the world there are people who are rebuilding community and the local economy to counter this system but anyway in Ladakh I, I not only encountered these people who were so happy I was amazed to see the standard of living they had large houses There was no hunger, there was no unemployment, had never existed. And I saw that in the name of development, what was being created was essentially a dependence on distant, giant corporations and traders, basically, at the expense of local jobs and local uh, well-being. Uh, I saw how butter suddenly got transported in from the other side of the Himalayas and it was delivered in the local economy selling for half the price of local butter. And that set me on a journey to look at this around the world and I realized it's going on everywhere. In in Devon, which is famous for its good cream and butter, you get butter from New Zealand costing a third of the price of local (laughs) butter. So this me on, on yeah, waking up to the way we need to strengthen local economies,
1: basically. Well, it's interesting that you talk about this, because I, I recall when we met many, many years ago at the Gross National Happiness Conference in Bangkok, Thailand, you had screened um, a, a, the film or a portion of the film. And what stuck in my mind, this is probably going back 10 years, is apples. You were talking in the film you were talking about the, 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 the travels of the apple the common apple that's and right ha-
2: yeah because what's happened because of this crazy system where blindly we're subsidizing global trade but we punish local traders the local traders are taxed very heavily and they're overregulated in the meanwhile we've got these so-called free trade treaties that give global traders ever more freedom total freedom you know, total deregulation. And as a consequence, we're getting this absolute craziness that includes countries importing and exporting the same product. So literally the US is exporting to date now about a billion and a half tons of beef every year and turns around and imports about a billion and a half tons of beef. The UK exports About 100,000 tons of butter and imports about 100,000 tons of butter. Now, first of all, you know, the easiest way to end climate change would be to end that madness. Yes. The apples in the film, we were talking about routinely, supermarkets will fly things across the world. So, for instance, apples were flown from the UK to be washed in South Africa, flown back again. From Norway, they fly fish to China to be deboned and then flown back again. You have shrimp flying from England to Thailand to be peeled and flown back again. Now, all this madness is going on without us getting information about it, and therefore the entire focus in terms of climate change has been trapping these poor individuals into this framing where it looks as though You can't go on holiday. You have to change your light bulbs and buy a a Prius. And I think the skepticism about climate change is partly an intuitive rejection of the way it's been framed and the fact that, so in a sense, there is a conspiracy because there is a conspiracy of silence around the way that giant corporate enterprise is by far the biggest contributor And we haven't been consulted, we haven't been informed, we haven't had a chance to vote about it. So this is a a really important issue. And and, uh, I'm really talking about, you know, the economics of happiness for us is the economics that allows us to rebuild genuinely healthier economic systems that mean
1: both human and ecological well-being. I agree with you, and I think it opens a conversation for discussing... The politics of enough, because if we have enough in our within our communities, if we use our local resources and there is enough for everyone, which there is, if we if we if we use what we have and share, but it, it causes some problems to the economic system that we have. Well, it's
2: that it does, but you know what? For my Experience now, which is now 40 years of looking at this from a global point of view, but from real grassroots experience in about 12 countries, ongoing experience. And what I'm seeing is that the big problem is blindness because neither the individual, you know, the individual consumer, the individual voter, nor people in government or even inside these giant businesses are looking enough at this bigger picture. So I see the main reason why we're heading in such a disastrous direction, really, it's not about people wanting more and more. It's about people trapped in a system where to just pay the mortgage or you're a CEO, you know, to keep up the standards that you're expected to have as a CEO and to just keep generating profit for that corporation. You're being pushed in a direction that is, for all of us, suicidal. So I really am I'm, I'm still hopeful that there will be more voices like ours. In, in local futures, we are very unusual because we've been working, as I say, all over the world at the grassroots. And so we have this picture of the global system that very few people have Because, usually speaking, you know, the activists who are trying to defend a forest or defend their jobs or defend the poor and the handicapped and so on, they don't have that global picture. And they get trapped in a very narrow and very destructive political discourse that is only dividing us. It's not helping us deal with the real issues. And in the meanwhile, the people who have a global view are the global managers, and they're caught in a web of total techno-optimism and absolute ecological and, I would say, spiritual and psychological and social ignorance because they do not understand what this system is inflicting on people and nature. They're just lost in their own world of numbers and abstract plans, and there's nobody there laying out the bigger picture and saying, wait a minute, stop buying those apples. For you, in a narrow sense, it makes sense because you've got cheaper labor on the other side of the world. Well, guess what? That cheaper labor on the other side of the world was created through colonialism and slavery. We really have to re-examine this system. We're
1: going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Helena norberg hodge talking about her book ancient futures and also the economics of happiness which is an award-winning documentary but to learn more about the work of helena norberg hodge please visit localfutures.org. on twitter you can connect at econ of happiness and on facebook that page is the economics of happiness here come the tunes we'll be right back and that is a promise Before we head out to the break, I want to talk with you about the magic of storytelling. Everyone has a family member or friend who always tell the best and most colorful stories, like that one about the first neighborhood TV or the wildly adventurous trip across India or meeting the love of their life. But here's the thing. We are all born storytellers. It's in our DNA. And telling our stories makes us feel seen, heard, and understood Storytelling makes me feel happy and more connected, and that's why I'm a subscriber to StoryWorth, the easiest way to share your story and pass on precious memories to your loved ones. And here's how it works. Purchase a subscription for someone you love, and each week, StoryWorth sends them an email with a question about their life. That's a year of weekly story prompts. Ironically, one of my recent prompts was, at what times in your life were you the happiest and why? These stories and photographs can also be uploaded at StoryWorth.com or via the app or email. Your loved one simply replies to each email prompt with their story, or it can be be recorded over the phone by calling the StoryWorth number. All stories are secure, confidential, and only shared with people you choose. At the end of the year, your loved one's story will be bound into a beautiful hardcover keepsake book. StoryWorth makes a meaningful holiday last-minute or anytime gift. This holiday season, I'm gifting an elderly aunt a subscription to StoryWorth in hopes of learning more about her immigration journey as a young girl from Europe to America. And here's a great holiday perk for listeners of Harvesting Happiness. You'll receive $20 off your subscription by visiting storyworth.com slash happiness. Learn more about those you love at StoryWorth.com slash happiness and subscribe to give gifts that will keep on giving. Once again, that's StoryWorth.com happiness. Now here come those tunes. We'll be right
0: back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to
1: download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, it's free, it's legal, and all of our library is available 24-7. We're talking today about making a difference in the world, locally and globally, through education and the economy. My guest has been and continues to be author and filmmaker Helena Norberg-Hodge. She is the award-winning documentary filmmaker of The Economics of of happiness and author of ancient futures learning from ladakh helena prior to the break we were talking about the big problem which to many may sound um insurmountable and at the break we were talking about ways on an individual level that we can make a difference in our approach to perhaps the way we purchase goods
2: yes i think first of all understanding this bigger picture is vitally important in order to be really strategic in our choices and in our activism. Um, And so, therefore, we really urge people to come to our website, localfutures.org, and perhaps also join a a workshop or a webinar online with us. We offer a picture that is so rewarding because there, there are ways in which our happiness, our identity, our well-being are being so negatively affected by the dominant system. We have a media that is completely corporate. It's not only reinforcing a sense of self-rejection and self-doubt. It is part and parcel of a financial casino and of of an industry where, you know, the food industry, the pharma industry... At every level, we're being pushed in the wrong direction. And we're not getting the information about the many, and I'm talking about millions of initiatives around the world, that are demonstrating that another way is not only possible, but it's happening. But it's all about reconnecting to the local. And the local, the first step is to really understand how alienated we are from life. We have to make a mindful, conscious reconnection with others and with the living world around us, with the animals, with the plants. We need to know that, you know, research now more and more and more shows how with illness, with depression, with addictions, that reconnection to one another and to nature is the path that heals and that restores well-being. Well, there is a path there that is about rebuilding local interdependence, local economies, starting to revitalize a food system where there is a connection between the farm, the shop, and the consumer. There is a rebuilding of that fabric that has a far greater healing effect than people are aware of. So one of the things you can do, first of all, is to do everything you can to support the local food movement. This is the most important counterforce in the world today. And it's got these multiple benefits, including reducing CO2 emissions, but not CO2 emissions just in terms of the transport of food. Even at the production level, when you shorten distances, the farms move towards diversification. And as part of diversified systems, even animals, can actually become a productive, healing, carbon-reducing way of producing food. So it's like you know the formula that is you know really going to save us at both a psychological, spiritual, and environmental level has to do with the shortening of distances. But like you might need to you know think about this a bit more. Look at our film, "The Economics of Happiness," you know, to see how this all works. Um, what you can do you know as you know the sort of two most important things you can do is number one is be part of what i call big picture activism and that means help us to get this film out help us to get the word out and it's not just us in our organization we're part of an international network we're part of really we're part of a whole movement that includes The biggest social movement in the world, which many people haven't heard of, is called Via Campesina, and it's about 300 million small farmers. Now, that movement is desperately trying to wake us up to how, in our ignorance, we end up destroying small farms, and it's something that we can counter by getting the word out, supporting the movements that are happening both as volunteers, as making donations. And, of course, we can do our best to shop locally. But let's remember it's not just about shopping. It's about getting the word out. It's about volunteering where you can or donating where you can to this movement which really is a global localization movement. And the global localization movement offers hope for the future like nothing else. It's because it's systemic. It offers healing at, at the, so many different levels. And really, we can't afford it anymore to see things as single issues and separate. We've got to see where they connect. And it's truly wonderful to realize that there is a way in which, as I said, not just our inner well-being, but our health, our social connections, and the environment all link together to a system that also allows for more genuine democracy and accountability.
1: On quite an organic level, I might add. I love what you said about local interdependence and. Living in Southern California, we have access to a lot of great farmers markets and most people that I know do their grocery shopping, their weekly uh, grocery shopping there for several reasons, you know, to support the local economy for the social aspect, um, because we know where the food is grown. We have a connection to those who grow the food. And we see the value uh, and impact on our, on our emotions coming together in community. And I think that there are areas within the United States and around the world where, the, where people might not have as easy access to farmers markets, but it's happening. It's growing. It is
2: growing. And it's even, you know, it's becoming very clear that even in the depths of winter, with a combination of more greenhouses, better storage, more diversification – You'd be amazed what's happening in terms of regional food economies that are really rich. And it doesn't mean that nothing will be transported and that you can't have anything from another part of the world. It really is about reversing the economic directions so that the local is going to be cheaper and something that's been flown for thousands of miles is going to cost more. That's the world that would be fair, that's the world that would reduce our environmental and social chaos. Now, I also want to add that one of the things we have to keep in mind is that there's huge vested interest, and the mainstream media is part of it, trying to make this localization movement look elitist. And, and we're not looking at how, in fact, it's the hidden subsidies and the deregulation of global and the heavy taxation and over-regulation of local that is driving the system in a direction where the global Walmart food will be cheaper than than something from a mile away. And again, this is where the activism in terms of getting the word out is so important, because we do need to change policy, and we do need to stop this obscene, obscene, absolutely obscene support for energy-intensive development. And by the way, the energy-intensive development now is not only about distance. It's also about replacing people with machinery at every level possible. We have to be very wary of the propaganda for robots, for drones, 3D printing. There is a huge corporate empire trying to basically replace people either with cheap labor, you know, the the migrants who come here or the food that's produced in China for less money, or machinery. And we're talking about jobless growth, where human beings are just being dumped on the rubbish heap. And we're talking about all the time making work so much less pleasant. If I so wish that people could come and visit some of the... Examples of real, the real local economy in action where you have not only food, but people coming together to do local finance for local businesses. You have, you know, a whole, a whole way of life that is more human, that is allowing the pace of life to slow down a bit. And above all, it's about connection to others and, and to nature. Um, and it, there's just, There's no doubt that this is what we have to do to survive and there's no doubt that it's in our DNA because this is how we evolved. This is how we lived for 99.9% of our time on this earth. Um, So I, I really hope people will be inspired and realize that there is hope. Everything does not have to go in an ever more negative direction and we are so heartened, and we have a, a series on our website called Planet Local. We get to hear about new initiatives every day, and we're just so inspired to see how many positive things are happening and how they demonstrate this amazing human wisdom, perseverance, and kindness. It's still out there, so don't lose hope in in human nature. I know that many people are.
1: Well, I'm the <laughs> eternal optimist. I mean, for, to me, if I if I give up hope and optimism and belief in something better, then, then I'm out of business. And so I refuse to do that. And I, I we're out of time. And, and I want to talk more with you about the economics of happiness because I think this is a super important subject. So I'm hoping that you will come back to continue the conversation, Helena. But I want to send our listeners over to the website, which is www localfutures.org on Twitter they can find you at Econ of Happiness. and on Facebook that page is the economics of happiness I've been speaking with author and filmmaker Helena Norberg Hodge about her work the, the movie the economics of happiness and the book ancient futures learning from Ladakh and I'm hoping that you'll return to, to be with me again
2: I'd love to come back Lisa I really like what you're doing Here come the tunes. We'll be right back.
0: Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, The glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just
1: joining us now, we're continuing the conversation about making a difference globally through education and economy. My next guest has been doing just that. He's written a book entitled It Takes a School, the Extraordinary Story of an American School in the World's Number One Failed State. Jonathan Starr founded and led the private investment firm Flag Street Capital. He's worked as an analyst at SAB Capital and Blaven and Company and as a research associate within the taxable bond division at Fidelity Investments and sat on the board of a publicly traded company. With a half a million dollar donation from his own pocket, Starr created the Abraasso School in 2009. His work in Somaliland has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg Businessweek, CNN, and the Christian Science Monitor. And he's in the house to talk with me about his book, It Takes a School. Welcome, Jonathan.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, it is a pleasure. Let's talk about why would you turn down a life of luxury to relocate to an armed compound in a breakaway region of the world's number one failed state, Jonathan? I mean, this is kind of, I scratch my head. I mean, I get it, you know, being the call to adventure. But what happened?
3: Yeah, well, it's a good question. Um, One of the things is that I never find material things to be what makes me happy. So um, even, and I, I mentioned this in the book, when when I was running this investment firm, I actually had a car that was valued less than uh, one of my junior partners' uh, bugaboo baby strollers. You know, it was actually like a seven hundred dollar car, and, uh, and, and as you know, you can buy a stroller for a lot of money these days. So, um, so. It, things were never what made me happy. I wanted to feel like I had made my contribution to the world and that and that I was being challenged and that uh, I was feeling connected to to people and to uh, and and to progress and I feel like um, I have nothing against the investment world. The investment world is actually a very necessary and a good thing, uh, which i don't I feel like it 's abused and it 's really unfair but It doesn't make you feel connected with people. And in moving across the world and starting this new project, I, and starting this school, I was suddenly thrown into a place where, um, where I was basically, I'm almost in like a, a, a war. I mean, I, my students, and the other faculty and I were were fighting to get these kids a future, and. We were, we were like, you know, we're kind of like war buddies. And it's a a very special relationship that develops. And we're, you know, to this day, we're still close. And, um, and it's a great challenge. And, you know, so it doesn't have monetary compensation. In fact, this has been very expensive for me. It's cost me a lot of money. But that doesn't change the fact that, uh, it has basically everything else that you could hope for. And yeah, so I don't live in a, when I, when I would be over there, I, living there, I wasn't in a fancy place. I don't care. And that's not what was going to make me happy or unhappy. Feeling like every day you get up and you have a real goal in life that you're going to get closer to that day, that makes me happy.
1: I completely agree and i and i and i I'm holding the vision of what you're sharing because I'm looking at the cover of the book, which includes a photograph of this compound, and I'm wondering if you can just set the framework for our listeners of what life is like living in this compound
3: yes, yeah, so it is <clears throat> excuse me three hundred meters by two hundred meters, which uh walled in, which you know for people who don't think metric uh is about. Nine hundred feet by six hundred feet, and uh, with very high walls i 'm not sure if you can totally tell in the picture just how high those walls are or that there 's razor wire on top of them, but there there is you can also tell from the picture. We are somewhere, we're really in the middle of nowhere. So we're about 12 miles from the capital of Somaliland, but those 12 miles are pretty much empty. There's a small village nearby, which is the village of Abarso, which the school is named after, uh, but it's a small village. Uh, so life in the compound is, uh, you can see that there's, there's sports fields. It's a combination of academics, extracurriculars, sports, um, and, uh, Everyone really trying to take care of the place and achieve their best and class starts at seven a m study hall ends at nine thirty p m and in between is a pretty full day so you have these foreign faculty who do live on campus and throw themselves into you know every minute of it um, and students who uh, they may come in not i mean not they may they come in having no idea of what a school like this would be like, but they very quickly catch on, and hopefully the older students are being good uh, um, mentors to them, and they'll also see some of our successful students come back, and they are inspirational to them. And when you when you see a kid from your village who's now at Harvard, and he comes back, and he's at the school, that's got to be inspiring, right? So um so that's what it is. It's just it's a bunch of people trying to achieve the best they can. Um, they're all humans, so we we have our faults and we're not all perfect. But uh, but hopefully every day we're moving a little closer to our goals.
1: Why Somaliland? What was the calling there in particular?
3: Well, so I have a Somali uncle who grew up in what was the British Somaliland. That was a, a British protectorate, and then he. Uh, came to the States through a scholarship at that time and was brought to, uh, Boston University where he met my aunt. So I had a connection to the place and I'd been hearing about this for years. Somaliland was also attractive to me, uh, kind of as an investor. Not, not that I was putting, not that I was investing money there, but as an investor, I tried to look for things that were, um, misunderstood and undervalued. That's what I look for as an investor. Well, Somaliland has the Somali in the name. Somalia, is, it's officially part of Somalia, which uh, has been a disaster since uh, pretty much the late 80s. And I thought, here is this place that is peaceful, that, that's, that is trying its best, but is unfortunately considered part of this bigger failed entity. And because of that, uh, is being unfairly held back. So I, I thought Somaliland probably offered very good opportunity and that others wouldn't see it. And I could see it because I had this uncle.
1: Yeah, you had the uncle and you had the vision. And I think, you know, when you're talking about investment and especially investment in happiness, whether it's your own or someone else's, uh, I think investing certainly the results have been outstanding investing in the people these these children um, ha- has is about growing leaders, you know, future leaders of not only their country, but going out into the world and being able to become doctors, lawyers, engineers, scientists, wh- whatever they want to be. You've given them a chance to do this.
3: Absolutely, and they will in turn give a chance to their countrymen who otherwise have no opportunity. I mean, the ultimate goal has to be that this that Somaliland gets developed and gets opportunity, because right now um, you've got great talent just be going to waste, and not only is it going to waste, but then it, I mean, great talent doesn't happily sit around going to waste, right? So it tries desperate things, and, and it could be pulled to extremism, which has happened in, in Somalia, where al-Shabaab has has been a very attractive uh, uh, alternative to people. And I think people here misunderstand, they, they think, oh, people go to al-Shabaab because they're a religious fanatic. I don't think that's true. People go to al-Shabaab because they have no hope, and yep. that gives them some degree of hope. So, I mean, you get someone like Mubarak, who's a main, one of the main characters in the book. Mubarak didn't know that a car was – I mean, he, was, he grew up nomadic. He thought a car was, a, was an animal when he, until he was about eight or nine when, when you know, finally he, he went to a refugee camp and found out that, no, 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 these car, cars and, and technology exist in the world. I mean, that's remarkable. If that brain had never had a chance to properly, you know, develop – who knows? I mean, he's incredibly talented. Who knows what direction he'd go? Instead, he got to go to our school. He got to get educated. Now, I mean, then he he gets into MIT. He's going to graduate there this year. He's actually studying autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, which is kind of oh ironic. my goodness. Um, <laughs> and the future for him, I mean, it's just there's no cap to it, right? So there's no there's no ceiling to it. Mubarak should be able to create opportunity back in his country so more the other mubarak's who are out there in the future won't be faced with such a desperate situation because how many did we get you know one out of a thousand of the of yeah. the talented people there but I we're mean, we're just beginning to tap a little bit of it our students can go back and they can make sure that ultimately the masses get opportunity
1: We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Jonathan Starr, author of It Takes a School, the extraordinary story of an American school in the world's number one failed state. To learn more about Jonathan Starr and his great work, please visit ittakesaschool.net. On Twitter, you can find him at Jonathan M. Starr, and on Facebook, It Takes a School. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that's a promise.
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are
1: talking about the new book, It Takes a School, the extraordinary story of an American school in the world's number one Failed state we have the author in the house Jonathan Starr Jonathan you were talking about Mubarak one of the characters in the book and his story coming from a culture where he didn't know what a car was and he's now attending MIT um, majoring in 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 you said uh, uh, autonomous vehicle design
3: Or engineering. He's majoring in electrical engineering and computer science, which is basically the combination of electricity and and, uh, programming. Is robots. Yeah, he's actually uh, he he is working on uh, autonomous vehicles.
1: So when you went into Somaliland, I would imagine that it was challenging in the beginning, at least, to earn the trust from a society that is very clan-based, tribally-based, and, and and the clashes that might have ensued to convince um, the elders that allowing them to educate their children, girls included, was a good thing.
3: Absolutely. And I think that, the lessons i learned from it are going to hold true whether you're trying to do uh, a project in inner city los angeles or in you know across the world like i did you need to win over the local populations and really i mean you can you can try to use trickery but if it's not going to last you need to to actually have a lasting <laughs> positive relationship you're going to need to win them onto your side and for us it started with the students our students very early on realized that they were getting an opportunity and they were getting educated in a level that was just well beyond anything they've had in a former school and then their parents quickly realized the same thing that gave us the original supporters um, and really without without the students and their parents we probably would have been you know, knocked over by bad elements in the society who would try to take advantage of, uh, of uh, the ignorance and the fact that we were foreigners. Uh, once we started showing clear outside success, like Mubarak getting into MIT, then the whole society was able to get behind us. But and it really was a matter of executing. You have to do a good job, and then people want what 's best for their children. If you do a good job again whether it 's l a or or across the world in Africa, if you do a good job and you help people 's children they 're going to be supporters
1: which brings up the point that when we talk about human happiness and and having a, a good life, you know whatever that means to the individual, it does come from some very basic. Core values and wanting our children to be educated, wanting our children to have safety and and security around them, is something. Whether it's here in America or or a, a, across the world, as you say, the goal is the same thing. And I think that that's what starts to shatter the 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 walls between seeing somebody halfway around the world as the other. They're not really the other.
3: Right. I mean,
1: they're I think they're, they're have... us. I mean, we're one and the same. People people are people.
3: Right, I think that's really true. I mean, my uh, and I, if you want to again tie it back to where we were, I mean, so you get this country, Somalia as a whole, which just breaks in the late '80s. You know, goes into the civil war. Uh, pe- the, the, just people had nothing. The, the society was at war uh, at that point. You know, if you come with if you come with education and you come with with medical supplies, if you're, you know, extremist Muslims, people are going, like, fine, I'm an extremist Muslim, right? I need my kids to get healthy, right? If you're, if you're, uh, if you're Jewish, they'll be Jewish, right? It, it just doesn't matter to them, right? It's really, if you're, if you're in a desperate situation, you, nobody says, no, I'm not going to get, you know, I'm not going to let that doctor. Uh, help my kid because unless I I know their religious beliefs, right? So, um, so really, those sort of situations, yeah, that's universal, and and people, that's uh, how a society like that can have gone from being a Muslim society, which it always was, to being extremely influenced by the Middle East and really becoming an extremist society, which is what happened. Um, yeah, and it's how a school like ours, which had a lot of pushback, especially from kind of extremists out there who didn't like the competition, how a school like ours could get embraced even though I'm not a Somali, I'm not a Muslim, you know, and despite that, we were embraced because we performed for their children.
1: Well, I guess it depends upon the weapon, right? I mean, in the case of um, extremism and training these kids to become extremism, you're weaponizing them with education. And with education and knowledge and insight, um,
3: hope begins to float, right? Absolutely. When people see a future for themselves, when they see that it's possible that they can actually live a good, productive life and they don't feel hopeless, then they don't turn to extremism. I mean, it's like we use extremism now to mean, you know, we've come to think of it as meaning terrorism. But if you just look at the word extremism, extreme behavior, you only choose an extreme action when you feel like you're in an extreme circumstance. Otherwise, you don't do it. And we're trying to make it so that, I mean, our students don't see that they're desperate, that they're hopeless, and, and they don't see that. And then the ultimate goal is that they go back to their society and they bring hope to their entire society, which when you take a kid like Mubarak, who went from not knowing that a car wasn't an animal to, to you know, being able to, to program autonomous vehicles, that's a pretty talented person. You know I mean, when a kid like that back <laughs> in the country, you don't want to bet against someone like that. That's for sure, right? You, you want him on your team, and you don't want to be betting against him.
1: And there are more Mubarak's. I mean, your students, you mentioned Mubarak's at MIT, but you have students who are at Harvard and other universities. You've had 40, more than 40 graduates at at this point. Talk a little bit about some of their other journeys.
3: Yeah. So actually, we're now, uh, it's now over 80 students we are studying around the world, mostly in America. Um, One of the other students who's featured in the book is uh, a girl named Fahima, who's um, a pretty, she's not an extremist in a religious way or in an in, 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 in intolerant way, but she's an extreme human being for sure. Uh, she has a chapter about her called Fahima's Rocks. Um, and Fahima, um, for, uh, this came out a little bit after I, uh, had finished the book and finished the epilogue and everything. Fahima recently got into Colombia, and, uh, I mean, she is such an intense person and, and really uh, just committed. To becoming a change maker in the world. Um, so, if you look at a t- student like Fahima, and there's just no end to what's possible, you look at uh, Nadira, who's now at Yale, um, but it's not just them. I, I now look at our ninth graders, and they're so inspired, and they're so excited, and their education, we're doing a much better job than we ever did before. So, we're talking about dozens and dozens of students who are in the pipeline. Who are going to be just as good as the Mubarak's?
1: Well, you are making extreme human beings. You're helping to foster these change makers, and it's and it's stunning. And I guess the next question is how? What can we do here in America, taking this model that you've created to help our school system? Because th- there's plenty of absence of hope in America as well.
3: Yeah, and that's really the thing, and I, I wish people could understand this. The fix to, to American schools is not some curriculum tweak. You know, it's not, it really doesn't, it's not something with the existing teachers necessarily. It's that you need to bring hope back into the schools. And if you're talking about a school that's failed for 40 years, that has, you know, that no kids are making it out of, that the teachers feel defeated, everyone goes in every day and feels defeated. If that's what you're talking about, you're not going to be able to just fix that. I don't care how good you are. I mean, really no one's that good. If everyone walks into the school every day dreading it, and some of us have been to those schools. That's how I felt about my junior high. You know, I f- I walked in every day dreading it. The last thing I was thinking about was getting educated. So what we need to do is really look and say – uh how do we, like, if we can't fix that, that culture, that school, then really that school just can't exist. You can't have kids going to hopeless places. And let's start getting hope back in the system. Because more than anything else, what we did to succeed at Abarso was we made the kids feel inspired that they had a chance. If they do their best, they really have a chance to be great in life. And I don't know why you couldn't do that in an inner city in America and actually some places have been very successful doing that in inner cities in America.
1: They have. And I, and I is that a plan of yours? Are you are you going to take this model back to the homeland here and 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 do some work with us here our well, students? No.
3: Um, not not next. I mean I I feel like I have a special opportunity back in Somaliland where we have such a good brand and people, we can keep expanding on what we're doing there. We're actually launching a, a women's university, a teacher's college first, uh, where we can take the same model that's made a Barso successful and bring it to that. What I feel like I can do in America is try to make people see that you look at our, you look at a Barso. I was not a professional educator. Most of our teachers were not actually trained uh, teachers. Um, Our facilities were subpar. Our students came from backgrounds that were more broken. I'll put our broken families up against anyone. Uh, We had one family that's 29 children from one father. 29 children. That's a big family. Um, We had everything against us. We didn't say, oh, we just need more money. We need more money. In fact, we we educate kids for a tiny fraction of what we spend in America. Um, And yet we were enormously successful. So all of the things that people kind of say, oh, no, this is what you need, that are not really necessary. What's necessary is to inspire kids that they actually can have a future if they put in the work.
1: Yeah, and I think that that really is the message. That is the message of hope, Um, certainly what you're doing with this model in Somaliland. We are nearly out of time, and I can't believe it. We didn't even get to talk about immigration, which maybe, maybe you'll come back at another time and do that with us.
3: I would love to talk about this immigration situation and talk about how our students are actually wonderful for America and for American long-term security. I would love to be able to discuss that because I think that this is this is not a partisan issue. I really believe that this is uh, – that anyone who just looks at it would say that having students like Mubarak and Fatima and Nimmo get educated, finish their education in America, go back and develop – their country and and actually create opportunities for people. That's good for American security. We don't want Somalis feeling desperate. We want their country to thrive.
1: Yes, I mean this is this is the solution, not the problem. And I think exactly. that's
3: that's the takeaway for me. And our kids get not to attack the order as a whole. Our kids just get caught up in it, right? I mean, it, I, I, there needs to be a degree of nuance where people can look and say. No, 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 You don't. Of course, not those kids. Of course, you want the kid to get to go to Harvard and then to come back and be a leader of their country. Of course, you want that.
1: Yes. Well, Jonathan Starr, thank you for the magnificent work that you are doing to create these extreme human beings, these change makers, a world away. But yet, really, uh, they are our neighbors, they're our friends, and they're us. And I think that that's what your story illustrates. Once again, the book is entitled It Takes a School, The Extraordinary Story of an American School in the World's Number One Failed State. The author, Jonathan Starr, has been in the house. And to find out more, please visit ItTakesaSchool.net, on Twitter at Jonathan M. Starr, and that's with two R's, and on Facebook, that page is It Takes a School. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. And happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, purpose place and meaning thanks for joining us on harvesting happiness talk radio this is lisa cypress came my amazing guest today helena norberg hodge and jonathan star wishing you kind thoughts kinder words and the kindest of actions until next time remember happiness is an inside job Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day.
0: Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on TokiNet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.